Good morning. Why don't we stand together? We want to express our deep appreciation for our Heavenly Father, right? I know it's Father's Day, but we all share the same Father. And isn't that amazing? Isn't it an amazing Father? He is just so good. So I thought the best way to express that would maybe start with a prayer. And we all know this prayer, or many of us do. Let's recite it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord, I just thank you this morning. We stand in your presence, the most amazing Father. Every good and perfect gift comes to all of us, whether we have done right or wrong. You bless us. You bless us with sunshine and rain. You provide food for us. You give us life. You give us relationships. You gift us in so many ways. And now I pray today as we uh, open our hearts, Lord, to what you want to share with us, that we will catch a vision, Lord, of a healthy Father, and not an abusive one, not an indifferent one, not one that neglects us, but one that's deeply invested in us. And I pray that that spirit would so embed itself within our own souls, Lord, that we would actually manifest that same spirit, whether we're male or female, into the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, I pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I know it's Father's Day, and I titled this sermon, What Does It Mean to Be a Father? We could say, What Does It Mean to Be a Spiritual Father? I could say, What Does It Mean to Be a Spiritual Father and Mother? Because how many recognize God made them male and female after his image? So all the characteristics of masculinity and femininity actually reside in God. It's interesting, all of it. And so we could say, not only if we're have no children, there's no biology involved, but we are just believers that there were people maybe we've brought to Christ, then we become a spiritual parent, or maybe there are people walking through our congregation that we've maybe a day or two in advance of their journey, and we can come along and assist them along the road. It all relates to this morning, so don't read that title and say, this does not apply to me. It does, but I am speaking a little more directly to fathers today, and I think that's important. Chuck Colson in his book, How Now Shall We Live, noted the disturbing realities that plague children growing up in a home without a father, because remember, he worked with prison fellowship, and so many of his research was involved with what was happening with people who were being incarcerated in prisons around the world. And the statistics in the U.S. at least show that 60% of rapists grew up in a fatherless home. 72% of adolescent murderers did not have a father. 70% of long-term prison inmates had no father in the home. In fact, most of the social pathologies disrupting American life today could be traced to fatherlessness. And I believe that we're living in an orphan generation. We're living in a time when people are looking for someone to come along and be a spiritual father, someone who would invest energy and time in their life and encourage them and help them in their life 
someone that would take that kind of a role as a father. Actually, good fathering is a critical element in a healthy society, but unfortunately, some today have had the experience of an abusive father. I remember years ago, we had a lady in our church, and I got to know her, and she, you know, I, I started realizing there was so much damage had been done in her past life because of an abusive father. And when she actually uh, wrote to me, because she couldn't even tell me, it was so uh, painful. She actually wrote to me a little manuscript. Actually, it was quite a few pages of her past. I began to realize how broken she really was. And so one day I said to her, listen, I said, I know I'm, I'm a lot younger than you. This was years ago, okay? So you won't know who this is. But years ago, I said, I'm a lot younger than you, but I am your spiritual father. And I want you to know I'm here for you. And, uh, and so, you know, this person really uh, was flourishing. I could see the spiritual growth and development in her life. And even when Patty and I moved to the U.S., she would continually send me a birthday card because in her mind, I was like her father. And eventually I moved back and we kept in touch throughout her entire earthly remaining journey until she went to be with the Lord. Uh, and so I, I just want you to know, fathering is extremely critical in people's lives. I recognize that as a young pastor, that actually pastoring is really being a father. And you're a spiritual parent. You're involved in people's lives. You're caring for them. You're taking on that role in your life. And I believe that spiritual fathering is not just reserved for church leaders. It's the need of the men in our church family to become men of God, to take responsibility to serve others in our church in a loving, nurturing, encouraging, and instructive way. I believe that's a necessity to have a healthy congregation. So the other night, not this past Saturday, not last night, but the previous Saturday, I was dreaming. And in my dream, God gave me a thought about what to preach today. Isn't that amazing? And I was actually working on my sermon in my dream. You know, you're going, Pastor, this is really scary. You know, you're or even dreaming sermons now. But, you know, that's the only time that's happened. Right? I've had moments where I've had dreams where God's given me ideas or maybe brought clarity to something I've been working on. So I want to take a look at the text that God brought to my attention about eight days ago. And we're going to look at that, and I'll explain to you the context in a moment. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verses 14, and especially in verse 15 and 16, listen to what it says here. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. How many already see Paul is using a metaphor. He's talking about relationship. Even though he's not a biological father to these people, he recognizes he's a spiritual father. He goes on to say, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers through the gospel. We'll talk a little bit about what was he meaning here. Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Now earlier in the, uh, earlier part of the chapter, Paul had been kind of describing the nature of his ministry among these people in Corinth. And he describes there this apostolic ministry or the ministers of the gospel, and he uses the word servant of Christ. But it's not the normal word that we have in the Greek language for servant. That word is diakonos. But this is a word, it's uh, hypercretus, which means someone who is actually a slave 
in one of those great rowboats on the lower level, and they were called under rowers, and that's the Greek word for an under rower. So this is a person that's really under great supervision. How many know those galleries? You know, you've probably seen those Roman movies and they have galley ships and then you have the slaves down and the guys beating the drums and they're rowing and someone's telling them, you know, when to stop, when to start, that kind of thing. That's the word that's being used here for uh, the person who is a servant of Christ. He says, Leon Moore says, it, from this it came to signify service in general, though a generally a service of a lowly kind, a subordinate kind, someone subject to direction. So now he's saying that the minister is subject to the direction of someone above them. Now that someone above them is not the congregation. <laughs> I, I think some people might think it's that, but it's not. This is not a democracy, folks. This is not how it flows. You're under God. God's the one that's giving direction here. As a matter of fact, he's gonna tell that to the Corinthians because they were really making terrible judgments against uh, you know, the leaders of the church, especially Paul himself. The Paul, Apollos, Peter, they were divided in who they were listening to. And, and really, Paul and Apollos and Peter were not even in conflict, but the people were. And they really actually were diminishing Paul's role amongst them, and we'll see that in a few minutes. However, he clarifies that they were now entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now, how many know that's a pretty powerful thing to be entrusted by God with his word? See, you know, I look at my job probably a little more elevated than most of you do. You know, you know if God came to me and said, you know, Paul, I want you to run a $100 million company, that's a huge stewardship and trust, right? But that would, be, that would pale in comparison to what I'm doing. God's given me the mysteries of God. He's given me the words of God. How many think that's a pretty major thing? See, now you could say, well, yeah, but I've been trusting you to lead a country now. Well, that's a great calling, and it's great stewardship, but it pales in comparison to God saying, I'm giving you my mysteries, and I want to communicate my message to my people, and I want you to be faithful to say what I want said. And there's a temptation many times on the part of ministers to say what people want to hear. But that's not, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna show you in this chapter, that's a very dangerous place to get to because I'm gonna stand before God and give an account to him for what I'm doing. And we'll see that here in this text. So he goes on to say that this Greek word, the word entrusted here, uh, is this word okonomoi, which was the person that was the, in charge of a household. He was, the, he was usually a slave uh, who supervised this huge estate. He was the administrator or the manager. Remember Joseph in the story in the Old Testament where he became Potiphar's? Uh, that's what the t idea is. He was the supervisor of all the slaves that ran that household and farm. Uh, unless, he, unless he was to be a slave to his slaves, a rich landowner had to find someone to do the routine work of running the estate. He held a responsible position. He was set over others. He directed day-to-day -day affairs. Then in relation to his master, he was a slave. But in relationship to the other slaves, in a sense, he was overseeing them. He was, in a sense, they were answerable to him. Interesting. This is the picture that Paul is painting for us here in the book of Corinthians here, in this chapter. So what he is saying to the Corinthians was that these spiritual leaders or fathers were before God subject to the direction of the Lord and were entrusted with this message of the gospel. And in relationship to the church, they were to oversee or manage the day-to-day -day operations under the direction 
of the Holy Spirit of God. Craig Bloomberg relates what's happening in this chapter. Paul is correcting an imbalance in the Corinthian approach to leadership. And we tend to do this. How many know we have a tendency to go from one extreme to the next? We have a very difficult time with moderation. He says, taken by itself, Paul's corrective could lead to an equal but opposite imbalance. You know, if you speak too highly of a thing, then people will tend to elevate. If you speak too lowly of a thing, we tend to really push it down. So he goes on to say, but in light of the entirety of scripture, we can see church leaders as servants who nevertheless have authority, as examples deserve to be followed, but not placed on a pedestal, as sufferers who also receive relief from affliction. These are all in the text we're going to look at. The parental balance between toughness or, or uh, firmness and tenderness is already amply illustrated within the chapter. We're going to look at that. So in the conclusion of the chapter, we find Paul making an appeal and stating a warning that there are two approaches to the issue that the church in Corinth were facing. So I'm not going to focus so much on the, the essence of what he's saying, but what Paul does is use the metaphor of father to explain how he's going to address the problem. He's using this image of a father. And so what I'm going to do this morning, and I think it's really within the context, I can say this, and you'll see it fits the text, um, is that what we're going to do is look at the key things that Paul says about fathering that he's getting across in making his appeal and his warning, okay? So what I'm basically saying to us is that I think there are three key things we can learn regarding the nature of being a spiritual father or the nature of being a father. So if I was to say to someone here, what's the greatest manual of instruction on how to be a father? We could say, well, we could say the Bible, but how do we come up with that? So this chapter, I think, above every chapter, probably does the best job of explaining what a father should do. I could argue what a mother should do. I could argue what a disciple maker should do. Okay, how many are seeing what I'm saying? But Paul decides to use the imagery or the metaphor of fatherhood to get his points across. So the first thing he says is that a spiritual father's behavior must be modeled. In other words, the person who is the father must live the life. They must be reflecting the life of Christ in order to help create an example so that the children learn how to behave. Do you know that children are imitators? Anybody know that? They mimic your behavior. And so if you have bad behavior, they're gonna mimic that. If you have good behavior, they'll mimic that. You know, you don't know this, but I, I know a little secret. When kids like me, it tells me the parents like me. If kids don't like me, if they were to say something nasty to me, I'd go, that came from the further up the chain. So you have to be careful, mom and dad. Your kids are telling on you. I just have to find out what, where the kids are at, and I know exactly where you're at. How's that? You go, pastor, that's sneaky. I go, no, that's reality. That's the way it works. Okay. Uh, so here we read in 1 Corinthians 4.15, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. So there's a difference here between guardians and fathers. How many see that? He's making a distinction between the two groups. Now, he's warning, too, you know, I don't think we really have a complete equivalent in our society, but probably the closest thing we have is a nanny. Guardians are like nannies. What are nannies are assigned to take care of kids, right? And they kind of are there. Just like in that day, uh, the word was pedagogos, 
and it referred to the slave who had special responsibility for the boy. And it was the personal, it was his responsibility to be the personal attendant who took the boy to school and home again and heard him recite his lines, taught him good manners, and generally looked after him. And he was entitled to some level of respect and normally he received it. But the guardians, though giving instructions, did not have the same vested interest in the child. How many go, that's true. A nanny does not have the same vested interest in a child as the mom or dad does. Does everybody know that? We can see that. So Paul is making that distinction. But I think he's going even deeper than that because we lose something in reading the story because we're not living in ancient Greece. Now, in ancient Greece, uh, it's fascinating. David Garland, one of the writers, he says this regarding uh, the guardians. He says, in pictures on Greek vases, the guardian is frequently portrayed with a stick in his hand, and in Greek plays, he's often portrayed as harsh and stupid. Okay? So he's kind of a comic type recognized by the rod. So when you, you know, in, in the ancient world, you know, there were certain, you know, like there are certain pictures that say, oh yeah, that guy's, you know, he, he's the goof. He, he's, the, he's the person that's, uh, you're not looking up to a guardian. As a matter of fact, usually the kids growing up said, yeah, he was pretty hard on me and maybe he was a bit abusive or whatever. So, you know, sometimes they were nice, but sometimes they weren't so nice. Now, what's interesting about that, what Paul is getting across is he's basically saying, he's, he's being a little sarcastic, there's a little irony and a little bite in this chapter, and he's saying, you know, you guys have a lot of people that are your guardians. As a matter of fact, the word myriad is the biggest number in the Greek language. He's saying you have an innumerable amount of people that are trying to run your life. Don't you feel that today? There's all kinds of voices in the world trying to tell you what to think. Does anybody get that? How many sense that? Those are guardians. You know, it's like a teacher. I'm not negating the role of being a school teacher, but let me just say this. Today, a person can be a teacher, but you have no idea of their lifestyle. I mean, you might have if they tell you, but you, they can tell you one thing and actually could be living a totally different life at home. How many say that's true? You have no idea what they're really doing. What they're telling you and what they are might be worlds apart. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of Christians are, are getting locked into, you know, well, I listen to so-and-so and I listen to so-and-so and I'm going, yeah, but do you know their life? Because a lot of times there's a lot of duplicity going on. You don't know that. You don't live around these people. But how many know if you have a father who's living with you, you're seeing his behavior. So it's a little bit harder to conceal what's going on. And the children begin to reflect the mannerism, the attitude, the words, the actions, the values of the father in the home. That starts coming out in the child's life. And we need to realize that. So there's a big difference between a person who's telling you and giving you information and the person who's pouring out their life and imparting their soul and, and giving up their life and it's, it's costing them to raise you and then pour into your life. There's a whole world of difference. How many say that's true? You know, I remember years ago, Andrea gave me a little plaque. You know, I, I have it in my wall. I have an office at home. I do most of my studying there. And in that plaque, it said this, Dad, you didn't tell me how to live. You showed me. Now that means a lot to me. It's a nice, beautiful statement. It's a statement of affirmation. But as much as that means something to me, you know, even though Andrew says, Dad, you did a good job, ultimately, she's not my judge of how good of a job I did. Oh, yeah, but, she, but she's my daughter. I go, yeah, but that's not who's judging me on how good of a job I did. You say, well, who's judging you then, Pastor? God is. 
And this is where I want to go, because I'm going to say some things that may shock you today, and I think we need to hear these words. It's going to hit you with some sort of an impact. Because, you know, a lot of times when we talk about stewardship, immediately we think about money. Or if I talk about stewardship, we think about time. But today I'm talking about the stewardship of relationships. And a lot of us, maybe we're slipping in this area. And this is what we need to understand. Listen to how Paul starts out. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So already Paul is saying, you know, don't put us too far out. You know, we're just common people, but don't put us too far down. Just remember, we have this kind of a calling. Then he goes on to say, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That's a very powerful statement. So God is judging the minister, even though you're judging me, it doesn't really matter what you think, ultimately. It matters what God thinks. So you may be judging me based on, well, he's not, he doesn't visit me enough, or he's not that friendly, or he's not this, or he doesn't do that. But God is judging me based on, am I faithful to what he's asking me to do? Can you see that? The trust has been given to me. Am I proving faithful to what God's asking me to do? Am I saying what God wants me to say? Am I doing what God's asking me to do? See, when it, it's taken a lot of pressure off me pastoring a large church because I have to only please one person. So you think I have to please all of you. That's impossible. I could never please all of you people. You know, I, I love you, but I couldn't please you. But I can try to please one, that's God. That's the only person I'm trying to please. If I really please him, there's a lot of people that like that, right? That's the way it works. And I'm trying to help you too because a lot of you in this room, you're trying to please too many people and it's driving you crazy. And you can't do it. And I'm gonna tell you right now, stop trying. Just try to please one person, God. That's not even your spouse. You're trying to please God. If you really please God, eventually I think if you're married to the right kind of person, you'll please them. That's how it works. Okay, listen to how it says here. Gordon Fee says, being trustworthy in a primary sense of that word, it means worthy of trust that has been placed in their care. Are we worthy of the trust God's given to us? I remember as a little boy, my dad placed incredible trust on me, 10 years old. Here's all of the money we made this week in my business. Just take your bike and go take it to the bank. It's all in this bag. So I was 10 years old. I wrote to the bank and gave him the money. You go, he's crazy. My dad had absolute trust. Of all the times I went, never lost the money. Always got deposited. So what happens? Later on, I'm 15, he goes, oh, I'm leaving on vacation. I'm giving you this responsibility. You're to, it's a low time in our business. This week, you're gonna run the business while I take the rest of the family. I'm 15, I'm running the business. Implicit trust. That's, and you know what that does? How many go, when you trust people, it empowers them? Now you understand why, I, Patty goes, I don't understand why you have so much confidence. I go, my dad built it into me. He trusted me. And I never wanted to let him down. So I didn't. Because I saw how much he trusted me. It's just an interesting relationship. Do you know, it's interesting to me that God trusts you and me. He gives us huge levels of responsibility. And it's actually an empowering thing when we step up and take that responsibility on. So then, who were we ultimately answerable to or ultimately answerable to well he says i care very little if i'm judged by you or by any human court indeed i do not even judge myself well this is interesting paul you know even our own personal evaluation does not st test stand the test of god's evaluation 
See, you and I can be either too hard on ourselves or too easy on ourselves. How many, how many of you say, I'm generally too hard on myself? Raise your hands. How many here say, I'm generally too easy on myself? Raise your hands. See, it's interesting. Can you see what I'm saying? So let's stop doing that because we're either too hard or we're too easy. You say, well, what am I supposed to do, pastor? I'm glad you asked that question. You know, because I want to help you. It says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So, you know, when people tell me, and, I, and I've had this happen, well, I have a clean conscience about this. I go, so what? It means zero to me. I mean, especially when they're telling me they have a clean conscience for doing something that I know is biblically wrong. Do you think that that's impressive? I'm just going, you got a seared conscience. It's what you got. No, but a clean conscience, even if you had a tender conscience, you, might, you, know, you could be overly conscientious and be driving yourself nuts. But here's the deal. He says, uh, I think one of the most powerful texts in light of how we personally are evaluating our lives is that God has a high standard. You know, you know how God's judging you and me? In light of Christ. That's his standard for you and me. You go, oh my goodness, pastor, you're freaking me out. I mean, I gotta live like Jesus? And the answer is absolutely. That's the goal. You're going, well, I'm not hitting that mark. I'm going, join the club. I haven't met anybody yet that's totally hit that mark. But I know one thing, that it means I have to depend on God to live like God. How many see that's true? If I don't spend time with God and depend on God, how am I gonna be like him? The more I hang with God, the more I'm gonna become more like him. And that's the goal of our Christian life. Gordon Fee says it this way, only the Lord, the master of the house to whom I am accountable may examine me and hand down a verdict as to the faithfulness to which I am discharging my duties. Listen to what it says in verse five. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Speaking of the end, wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart and at that time each will receive their praise from God. So what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, you and I, uh, well, first of all, it, he seems to be saying make no judgments whatsoever, but that's not true because in the next chapter he says to judge this and judge that. So what does he mean by this statement? Well, that they were, stopped to, they were to stop making judgments on those that were leading them. Actually, I'm gonna say something. We have to be very careful when we're making judgments against each other. You don't know what's going on inside that person and you don't know all the circumstances. So we're very quick to make assessments and many times our assessments are totally wrong. And you're, you, we actually do a lot of damage to people because we're in their space judging this and judging that and we have no idea. I would even argue this statement in Proverbs. All a person's way seems pure to them but motives are weighed by the Lord. Now you remember there's a, I've, I've said this before, two psychologists, Joe and Harry, that was their first names. They created this thing called the Jahari window. That's how they came up with the name. Really crazy, right? Unique. But what they learned about human behavior was simply this. There's things that you know about yourself that nobody else knows. There's things that others know about you that you can't see. You're blind to those things, but others see it. Then there's things that you know and everybody knows. And then there's that fourth quadrant where it's what I don't know about myself and what nobody else knows, but only God. So here we are thinking we're doing great guns and God goes, well, be careful about your assessment because I can see what you can't see. And sometimes we're doing things and we think, hey, we're doing a great thing. And God goes, yeah, but I see your motive. And it's, it's, just, it's not discernible to you that you're not as pure as you think you are. See, it says that. A person's way may seem pure to them, but their motives are weighed by the Lord. God sees what's going on. 
So what is he saying? He's saying, let God be the one that ultimately judges people. Well, that's great. I love that, you know. But that doesn't take me off the hook and not make it an assessment, you know, because sometimes you have to assess your job. Am I doing my job? Or if there's, you know, performance reviews, if I'm at work and they're reviewing my job and I'm not doing my job, people are going to speak into that. And they're allowed to speak into that because they've hired us to do a certain task. I get all of that. But don't judge people's motives because you have no idea why people are doing what they're doing. None of us do. The need, we, but we do have a need for spiritual models. You know, Paul is challenging them to imitate his life. How many think that's pretty, pretty amazing? Think about what he's doing. I like what Craig Bloomberg says. He says, to command the Christians to imitate me either represents the height of presumption or reflects one of the most profound and challenging insights of all time on how to reproduce Christian disciples. In other words, he's saying, I'm following Christ. If you follow me, I'll show you the path to stay on. I'm on the right path. Stick with me. Let's do this together. That's what church is all about. That's why we're in community. You know, we're on a path together and we're trying to help each other stay on the right path. Amen? Yeah, you're walking in wisdom or you're walking in folly. You're either walking in the spirit or you're not walking in the flesh. You're either following Christ or you're following the ways of this world. You're either thinking like God or you're thinking like society. It's very simple. You know, we're making it complex, but there it is. It's right before us. And then he goes on to say, in light of the rest of Paul's life and teaching, the latter is more probable. He's basically saying, you know, I'm trying to help you become a follower of Christ. Progress along the road to sanctification demands new believers have consistent, positive, mature Christian models to imitate in all aspects of, of daily life. How many know, you can say to people, this is what you need to do, and somebody goes, that didn't help me. You just told me. I need to see it. I need somebody to show it to me. I need to understand by demonstration. I need someone to model it for me. And so what God is asking is that every person in this room becomes a Christian model. Every one of us are becoming like Jesus, are modeling for other people what it's like to be a Christian. And that's why behavior and lifestyle is so critical. That's why it's so important as a Christian mom and dad to be consistent in your walk with God. Because your kids are, are looking at you and they're saying, yeah, well, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another thing. And what, what, what do we call that? Hypocrisy. And, and you know what? People are smart. They pick up on that. And they go, you're not authentic. You're not being, you know, genuine. You're not, you don't have integrity. You're missing all of that. Now, that doesn't mean we never make mistakes. Don't, don't go there. I mean, how many here you say, oh, I perfectly model Jesus to people all the time. I never mess up. Well, I can't say that. I've messed up on more than one occasion. And I think in this room, you've probably had a few snafus in your life as well, right? You know, isn't that true? And sometimes you've had to go to people and say, hey, I was wrong there. I'm sorry, my behavior was wrong, my response was wrong, my reaction was wrong, right? Hopefully we're able to do that to our spouses and to our children, to our coworkers and to our friends that we say, hey, that was, I was out to lunch there. And I believe that's part of growing in our, our faith with God. We know that both Jesus and Paul had their disciples, their followers spend time with them. How many know you learn more by just hanging with people, you know? You know, a lot of times we think, oh, I gotta be profound all the time. No, just hang with people. You know, if you, if you have good friends that are godly and wise, you're gonna learn a lot from their behavior. You just pick up on it. You go, look how consistent they are in that. I just saw the way they treated that person. You know, it's amazing. You know, you, you know you, you're in a restaurant with somebody and you're maybe having lunch with somebody and, and all of a sudden you, you watch the way they relate to the person that's serving them. 
and you learn a whole bunch of stuff. You learn how to behave. I think that stuff is really critical. Now, David Garland goes on to point out, this is what Paul expected to come from their imitation. He says, uh, they are to give up their hankering for high status. See, the Corinthians were really into the society, the way the world thought, eloquence, all of those things. But he wanted them to accept lowliness that he was modeling. They are to welcome being regarded as fools for Christ and weak and dishonored. Now, how many know that's a tough pill to swallow, that you, you don't seem like the cool dude, you know, that you actually seem out of step with everybody else, and that God many times chooses the weak things of this world. As a matter of fact, he likes to do that. Why? Because then he has to work through us. And you and I recognize we're not up to the task. We need God's help to do these things. Uh, he goes on to say here, they're to return abuse with blessings, slander with conciliatory tone, right? To endure persecution. They're to recognize that all that they are and have come to them comes as a grace gift from God and that they are not inherently extraordinary. You know what our culture keeps telling everybody? They're extraordinary. You know, when in reality, you and I are little clay pots and the, and the glory and the power is the presence of God in our lives. And that's a gift from God. And so that we walk in dependency and humility. You know, we got, we got far too much pride as a culture. I mean, I'm, being right, I'm being upfront about it. It's, well, let's be honest about it. <clears throat> you know, North Americans, we think we have our act together. I don't think so. I, I think we got a lot to learn from other cultures. We, we, don't, we need to learn. We, we think we're exporting good ideas. I think we're exporting bad ideas. You know, we're exporting garbage a lot of times to other cultures. And it's sad that we should be learning from them. You know, it says they are to think of themselves as no better than field hands and servants. They are to rid themselves of all resentments and rivalries with coworkers so that they can toil together in God's field. Isn't that beautiful? Because these people were divided and they were all talking about who's better than this and all the rest of it. And you know, all of that comparison stuff is stems from pride. That's where it comes from. You know, the ultimate aim is not to be like Paul. The ultimate aim is to be like Jesus. How many say that's true? You know, the Corinthians were to imitate it only so far, insofar as his behavior related to the gospel or how Christ lived. That's what they needed to do. But let me just move on to something very interesting. Many people today uh, realize that when you start investing in other people's lives, you know why people don't do it? I'm gonna tell you why. Number one, it costs you something, it's difficult, and you're often unappreciated and misused. How many say that's true? That's the way it works. You know, how many parents today, you know, and I, I'll confess this, you know, as a young person, there were moments in my life, you know, I, I grew up in a real dysfunctional home, and there was times I was so messed up and self-centered that I remember one time just telling my mom she didn't, you know, you know she didn't care for me, she didn't love me, she didn't do anything for me. You know, and I think back now, just, just think of how stupid those statements are. You know, she carried me for nine months. She went through labor for me. She ended up enduring all kinds of hardships. She gave up time, effort, and energy to feed and clothe and care for me. What kind of a stupid statement is that? But you know, I'm gonna say something. A lot of young people today, they have an entitlement mentality. They don't realize a lot of people sacrifice to give them what they have today. But we don't have any sort of appreciation for that. God, deliver us from that hard attitude. It's totally wrong, Right? Come on, let's think about this stuff. You know, people, you're, you're here by the grace of God. You've been blessed with whatever background you have. That's a blessing from God. We should be so thankful. It's so important to get a hold of that. Well, here's one of the most chilling parables in the entire Bible. How many people today are not stepping up to this calling? You know, they're saying, hey, I want to live a, you know, 
I want to live a hassle-free life. I want to have, I don't want to be dealing with problem people. I want to just step away from this arena where I'm having to serve other people and give up my time and energy and my life does not become my own. And a lot of people are doing that. But here's the chilling warning you need to hear. And that's a parable. Remember, Jesus gave talents out, five, two, and one. Remember that story? And then one guy comes back, well, I just took what you gave me and I buried it. I didn't do anything with it. Notice what Jesus' response is, the master. I think this is God's response. He says, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant, oh my goodness. Another translation says that wicked servant, outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but those are chilling words to me. What he's basically saying is when you and I say, well, I don't have time for this. Well, I don't have time to invest in the stewardship of relationship. I don't have time to mentor and help other people. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to participate in the building up of God's community of faith. I don't have time for that. What you're basically saying is I have the wrong priority. I mean, there are people when you say you don't have time. Now, I think there are people that says, listen, physically I can't do it. Well, you can pray for people, you know, there's always something we can do, right? But you see what I'm getting at? We have to be very careful. We don't run into this. But what happens when we're faithful and we go through all that hassle and we're, you know, maybe we're parenting someone, either biologically or spiritually. We're mentoring someone. We're coming alongside someone. We're helping people. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Can I just say that when you give your life away and it's not about you and you're serving other people, yes, it's costly and it's, it's difficult and you can be criticized and all the negative stuff in the world. But on the other side, let's go to the flip side. Do you know the joy of investing in people's lives, watching them develop and become the person God's designed for them to become, see the maturity and the growth in their lives? You, you know what? That's, a, that's joyful. You know, I have the joy of watching, you know, my kids. I'm watching what they're doing. I'm, I, I'm, you know what, I'm proud of them. I can say that publicly, I'm proud of them. I'm watching them become these tremendous men and women of God. What an amazing thing it is. You don't think that does something for me? I'm just going, man, God, you're answering my prayer. And when I see you as congregants step up out of yourself and I see you moving past your, your, your fears and your, your inhibitions and your struggles and I see you rise up and, and begin to serve other people and lay down your life for other people, I'm going, man, that's so beautiful. What a beautiful example that is. How joyous that, that gives not only Jesus but me as a pastor. I'm full of joy when I see that. But let me move on to the second thing, the challenges that have to be overcome to do this. You know, how many know fathering is not for the faint of heart, the self-centered, or the lazy individual? Cancel all those things. Because you can't do it if you're going to be like that. You know, immaturity in any arena of life, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, can create moments of tension, difficulty, frustration, and even heartache for those who are caring for those God has entrusted to them. You know, there is, there is frustrating moments. There is, you know... I, I could write a book about pastoring. Done it for 40 years. I can tell you the upsides and the downsides. Anybody believe that? My wife has lived with me. She goes, she's seen the whole thing. She knows, you know, what frustrates me. You know, I just go, I can't believe this. I don't always say it, but I think it. Thank God I don't say everything I think. <laughs> Here at Corinth, Rather than the people being humble, appreciative, respectful, and eager to learn, they were arrogant, filled with pride, and defiant. 
They were, they were putting Paul down. I mean, can you just think about this? One of the greatest ministers of the gospel, probably the most brilliant theologian in the church's history, and these people think he's an idiot. These people are putting Paul down. I'm going, you know, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have. You know, I, I thought about this. Think about Moses. If you asked a Jewish person today, who is their greatest leader? They'd probably tell you Moses. But let me take you back to the wilderness. When they're marching through the wilderness and ask those people, who do you, what do you think of Moses? And they said, right now, we've got rocks in our hands. We're ready to kill him. How many are catching on? You see? You see, people are very fickle. You know, if you're, if you're doing something good for me today, I'm happy with you. If you're not doing something good for me, then I'm mad at you. They're blaming you, right? I'm just pointing this out. Moses was a great leader. David was a great king. One of the best kings in Israel's history. But you know what? When he led his men back home to Ziglag and the village was burnt, the men spoke of stoning him. They were so discouraged. Now what did David do? He had, he had 600 men that were armed and angry and they wanted to kill him. This is when you have to have a prayer life. It says, and David inquired of the Lord. He probably said, God, you gotta get me, you're gonna have to come and super help me. And so David said, hey, come on, bring this, you know, let's seek God here and find out what he has to say. I think we can recover everything we lost. And God said, yeah, you can do it. And then he rallied his men and they went and did it. But at that moment, just before that happened, they were ready to kill him. Are we catching on? A lot of times people get like that. Hey, I got like that toward my mom. What an idiot, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm speaking of myself. But how many realize that, uh, well, he goes on. He goes, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us meaning, the meaning of the saying. Do not go beyond what is written. By the way, most commentators don't have a clue what that means. So I'm not even going down that track, but this is what I'm trying to get to. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. What's he dealing with? Puffed up. What is that? Pride. How many know pride is a problem? You know, big problem. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What is he telling us? There's not one person in this room has any reason to be proud. Because everything you and I are and have came from God. So what's the first step when I know I'm personally having a bad time in my life is when I'm, no I'm, I'm grumpy and complaining. That's the first step away from God and that's the first... At, that, that reveals at that moment I'm in a state of pride. See, we should be living with a perpetual state of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. You go, yeah, but I don't like the circumstance I'm in. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. God's bigger than that circumstance. How many know that's true? I think we should learn to say, hey, God, this is amazing. We're parked at the Red Sea. I'm looking forward to seeing it open. Right? I'm just giving you a different way of looking at the big problem that's in front of you, right? You could be saying, I'm drowning. I'm about ready to drown by the Red Sea. Or you could say, hey, God, this is amazing. This is where the miracle happens, right? I'm looking forward to seeing how it's done. Okay, some of you are looking at me like, I'd rather not be at the Red Sea, Pastor. I know, but I'm just giving you, we're all gonna get to there because God's gonna reveal himself to us, right? You know, generally, you know, pride <clears throat> results from an improper perspective both about oneself, in other words, we're looking at what we've achieved or what our status is, or about one's true stance before God. 
We have this entitlement. I deserve this from God. Look at all I've done for you, God. Wrong. Look at all God's done for me. That's the right attitude, right? How many know we're helpless? I would, I would argue in this room, if God wasn't working in all of our lives, you and I would be helpless and hopeless. So let's not walk around going, hey, I'm, I'm the greatest thing that God ever created. Well, forget that. Just be thankful he created you and he's gonna help you. That's what we all have to have that attitude. He says here, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've already begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. You know, he's, you're acting, he's saying like you don't need us. And we know that Paul doesn't believe that what he's saying here, he's basically, this is being sarcastic to them. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Do you know what he's talking about here? In Rome, Rome would conquer a nation, gather all those people, put them in slavery, bring them in chains, bring them to Rome. They'd have a great triumphal procession and you're walking along captured in chains ready to be either executed, sold, you know, or put into the gladiatorial arena or eaten by lions or whatever. I mean, what a nice, good thing to look forward to, right? He says, that's how we feel in life. We feel like the, you know, we're on display, he says. We're can, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He's saying, you know, all hell is watching this. All the angelic hosts are watching what's going on right now. The good angels and the bad angels are watching you and I, watching what we're doing. You know, can you see it? This is a great contest. That's the picture he's framing for us here. He says, we're fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're so strong, he says. You were honored, we're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless. He says, we work hard with our own hands, and when we curse, when we are cursed, he says, we bless. He says, when we're slandered, we answer kindly. When we've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up until this moment. He's basically saying, look, I want you to understand. I want you to change how you see yourself. Our culture is constantly self-elevating humanity, and we're just full of ourselves. We've developed this entitlement mentality. It's, It's actually destroying our culture. Have we figured that out yet? You know, would to God we'd get the right assessment of ourselves. Once we understand we're created beings made in the image of God, accountable to Almighty God, totally dependent and helpless, we're like sheep, which by the way are quite dumb. You know, just pointing that out. All we like sheep have gone astray, right? They're helpless. Sheep are helpless. They need shepherds. They need someone to take care of them or they're gonna be in big time trouble. You and I are sheep. We're helpless. Without the good shepherd, we're in danger, folks, against the wolves. We're not gonna take care of ourselves. We're gonna end up on our backs. We're gonna you know, be, be in major trouble. We need God's assistance. So Paul's point is singular. In contrast to the Corinthians who are rich, filled, ruling, wise, powerful, honored, He and his fellow apostles look far more like their Lord who fits well the picture of Isaiah's suffering servant, which is what? Listen, this is about Jesus now. He said, he who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom the Lord hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now what's Paul saying? You're holding me in low esteem, but that's okay. They held Jesus in low esteem. What does it matter to Paul, he's saying to these guys? What does it matter? You're judging me. Shouldn't be. 
But you know what? I'm accountable, but not to you. I'm accountable to Almighty God. Unfortunately, you're taking the wrong attitude. And how many know pride's going to get you into trouble? So why is Paul talking to them? Well, it gives me my last point. You know, being a spiritual father, being a father, there's a need to correct and discipline, which is actually an expression of love. How many know that when we don't correct people, when they have the wrong thinking, the wrong attitude, the wrong behavior, we are actually saying, I don't care about you. I'm neglecting you. You can go ahead and do your thing, and the consequences will fall on your head. But if someone really cares about you, they're going to walk up and say, hey, you know what? You know, I, 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 think, that, I think we have to do correction the right way. You don't, you don't attack people. You encourage them, but you say, here's something in this part of your life that's, that's not good. It will hurt you and other people. So I think the great challenge of being a father or parent is the right balance between toughness and tenderness, between discipline and tolerance. See, remember what he says here. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. But the shame that Paul wishes to avoid causing the Corinthians is a loss of face. Although he does not shy away from speaking openly about shameful behavior, he wants to communicate that it's their values and behavior, not their personhoods, that are unacceptable. You know, if I had a camera right now, I'd take a picture of this slide, and that last line is absolutely critical. We're not here to attack the essence of a person. And we got to get this in our heads. That's not our job. Let God make the changes. No, what we're communicating is a concern about the right attitude or the wrong attitude, the right behavior or the wrong behavior. We're speaking to an issue. We're speaking to a certain thing, not to the whole person's life. You know, a lot of times when people correct people, they make the people feel like that person is totally worthless. And that is totally the wrong way to correct a person. What you need to do when you're correcting someone is to affirm their value and worth and all the good things they're doing. And then you could bring up, there's one area that I see is diminishing all the good things. And this is what you want to correct so that, you know, you the person you are, this area won't keep you back from being all of this. You see what I'm saying? So when people are corrected, you know, I always say it's like a sandwich. You got to affirm people, the, the, the specific thing that needs to change, much more affirmation at the end, okay? Because when people leave, they got to feel like, you know what, you're for them, not against them. But when we attack people, a lot of times we come across, we, they feel like we're against them and not for them. Isn't that true? That's the wrong approach. You know, even, he says, he may intuit that their hunger for status is attributable to core feelings of shame that lead them to crave some external compensating validation of who they are. Do you know why people do things? Because they want to be validated. All the things we're doing is to create some measure of validation, he says. But rather, he says, addressing them as beloved, my dear children, expresses respect as much as it does affection. You can see the fatherness in this whole thing. You're my children. I care about you guys. You know, he's validating them. He wants to instill in them a sense of self-worth that comes from God's grace and power. So self-worth does not come from achievements that I'm creating for myself. That's what the world does. My self-worth should be coming from my understanding that I'm in relationship to the one who created me and I have value and worth because he designed me. And that as I walk in obedience to him, he can affirm that in so many more ways. He goes, which is able to eradicate any hunger for the mercurial, inconsequential honor bestowed by the world. Those are powerful statements. 
So let's stand as we close. My time has come to an end. And just I want you to think about this. You know, God has called every human being to himself. God calls every human being to himself. We're all created by God. He says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Come and learn of me. I'm, I am what? Gentle of heart. Come to me, Jesus says. So we need to come to him. He says, learn of me. Follow me. Become like me. That's what Jesus is saying to us. But then he's also saying, when you're following me, I want you to do what I do. What's Jesus do? He said to Peter, look, you used to fish for fish, but I'm going to make you a fisher of what? Fisher of men. I want you to go after people. So in this life, no matter what job we have, what vocation we have, what we all need to be doing, all of us, is investing our time in someone, in people. We need to be pouring our life. You go, yeah, but you don't always get the returns you want. It's not about what you're getting back. It's what you're putting in. I remember years ago, our board once said to me, Pastor, what do we get for being in this association of churches called the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies? You know what I said to them? Wrong question. Wrong question. It's not what we get out of it. It's what we get to put into it. See, when we come to church, if you come here and say, well, what am I going to get out of this? Wrong approach. We should be coming and saying, what can I give to it? The people who receive the most are the people who give the most. It's true in life. I can prove it to you. You put very little into something, you're going to get very little out of it. Then people walk around and they say, nobody cares, nobody did this, nobody did that. All they're telling me is, I didn't invest in anybody. The more I give to something, the, the greater the investment I make, God's going to, God will make sure the returns come back. I'm not doing it for what they're going to give me. I'm doing it to please my Father. I'm doing my stewardship that God's called me to. I'm answerable to this one person. Father, have I done what you've asked me to do? And so my question this morning is, who am I investing my life into? And that's the question I'm raising for you. Who are you investing your life into? See, you can't do that without participatory life with somebody. That's why God designed the church to be a community. We don't, you can't just watch it live stream and never come. Eventually, you have to come. You've got to be a participant. You've got to be engaged. You've got to build relationships. You've got to invest in people's lives. You've got to serve other people. Is this making sense? And that's what it means to be a dad. You know, it's not just being a biological dad. It's meaning I'm investing, pouring in, giving up my life so that they have a better life. And I do it without any sort of grudging spirit. I am so happy. My desires, my kids will do way more than I've ever done. They'll do far better than I've ever done. Derek, don't you feel that way? You're a dad. Isn't that your heart? Isn't that your heart? And Nick's going, yeah, that's my heart. Andrew, isn't that your heart? Of course it is. You want your kids to rise above you. The Father in heaven wants his kids to rise up and invest and pour their lives out so others will be blessed. We have a broken world today. You know what a lot of Christians are doing? They're crying, oh God, it's getting so terrible out here. I hear this a lot, you know. I'm going, good. What? I said, it's getting darker. You and I are the stars 
that are going to start shining brighter in this darkened world. It's the hour of the church's greatest opportunity. People are now beginning to realize in North America, we could live independently of God. No, you couldn't, but they thought they could. But now as it's falling apart and the wheels are coming off and people's lives are banging all over the place, now they're starting to reawaken. Oh, I need help. I need help. Help, where do I get it? And most of the other people are just pulling them down. And all of a sudden they see a star. There's light there. And you and I are holding out the word of life. You and I are investing in people. You and I are loving one another. They're going, man, I don't feel people are loving me. I feel people are taking advantage of me. Now we're committed to loving each other. Amen? All right. So with every eye closed, how many here say today, you know, pastor, I'm convicted. Maybe you're convicted because you feel like I've been hiding my little light under the bushel. I've been, I've been you know not using my talent and man those are chilling words I, I, I want to be obedient to who God is calling me to pour out my life for and maybe that's you today listen he's a forgiving father he's saying okay now dig up that talent get it out of the ground right now I want you to use what I've put into your life I want you to invest it into the lives of people I want you to use the stewardship of your beautiful life be poured out for others how many here say you know what God spoke to me this morning God's speaking to me right now I need to be investing my life I need to be pouring out laying down my life for other people it starts with your kids if you're a biological parent it starts with your kids but it shouldn't stop there it should always start there don't neglect them but move beyond it let them see you helping other people so that they in turn will learn how to do it that our family is a family that helps other people. Amen. You're teaching them by your example. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that this message that you put on my heart in a dream will speak so deeply in our soul that we will rise up and pour out our lives, even though it's costly, even though we have to lay down our, our, a lot of things that we could do with our lives, but it's worth it for the joy that's set before us. Jesus, you yourself endured the cross and despised the shame in order for the joy that was set before you, the joy of seeing us here today, children that love you and serve you. You did it for us. You paid it all. All to you we owe. We thank you for that, Father. Help us, Lord, this coming week to spend our time and resources and energy in investing wisely in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.